This is Champagne Problems, where we come together to explore the gray areas of drinking. This is a judgment-free zone where we can all take a look at how we make decisions about our relationship with alcohol. Hello, all of you glorious people. Welcome back. Today, we're doing another listener spotlight, and we have an incredibly inspiring man on the show by the name of Alan Burgess. Alan is an artist, an educator, and an activist who entered recovery back in 2005 after 20-plus years of alcohol and heroin abuse. Alan has spent the majority of the last 15 years working as a program director at an arts and education center for at-risk kids and as a life skills educator for young adults. Good gracious, what a gentleman. Let's go to Alan. Here we go. Got my man Alan Burgess here today, or as I like to call him, A+. <laughs> <laughs> I can't hear that name without thinking of our boy, Tom. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to Champagne Problems, man. Yeah, man. Thank you. I've been really excited to have you on. Um, for our listeners out there, Alan's a, a good friend of mine that I met down in Delray Beach, Um 11 years ago, he was a integral part of my early recovery in terms of a mentor and a friend and an inspiration. Alan and I, he moved to L.A. several years ago, and then I moved back to Charlotte, and uh, we've stayed in touch over the years, and he has become an avid listener of the podcast, and um, we've had some really cool conversations about the conversations that we've had on here, and I thought he would be a perfect guest for our listener series, so Give us a little kind of background on on you and how, I mean, obviously there's our connection, but what kind of attracted you to the podcast and get, give us a good rundown, man. You know, I'm from uh, the Jersey Shore. I grew up in a low-income housing project in a family of uh, mom and dad. That was kind of what you call... I guess in the black community, like strivers, you know, like we, we didn't have much, but I came from a family that was uh, upwardly mobile in terms of black people in the fifties and sixties. You know, my great grandmother had a college degree and not a lot of black people can say that. My brothers, I came from a family of uh, five kids. I'm the oldest of four boys and I had an older sister. Um, I would say the formative years for me were like the 60s and 70s. And uh, I got out of high school in, I'm 68. I got out of high school in 72, which was an interesting time, you know, like Vietnam, civil rights, the whole deal. I was an athlete, a really high level athlete in high school, a lot of scholarship offers and all that. Um, so in terms of drinking and substances, I got through high school relatively unscathed because I, wanted to play sports. You know, I went to college on a football scholarship initially. Came to California to play football in, uh, in college and, that, and then things got a little hazy after that. A little <laughs> hazy? Know? A little hazy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like I flunked out of school, found myself back home in a small town that was right across the bay from Manhattan, from New York City. So I grew up with the pleasures of a small town. Um, but as soon as I was old enough, I was crossing the river in the, into... Um, New York City. You know, I started drinking wine and getting drunk when I was about 18. And by the time I was 20, um, you know, I was buying heroin in Harlem. 
And I was one of those people who, um, I guess the term is functioning alcoholic and addict, where I was able to go a lot of years drinking and getting high without severe consequences. Mm -hmm. A, a uh, striving you, addict. Uh, yeah, right, right. <laughs> I, um, you know, got married, bought a house, had a kid, went back to college and all that. Uh, and then whatever that line is where you turn from a cucumber into a pickle uh, hit me. And then I had um, about 10 years of pure hell mm -hmm. of just total, uh, I shouldn't say total because I know too many people have died, um, of, of spiraling downwards. I was sitting in a truck with a friend of mine on November 9th, 2005 and I looked over at him and said I can't do this anymore and uh by Monday the 11th of November 2005 I was on a plane down to South Florida where I met you Patrick wow and you know and there's a lot to it um you know that's the cliff notes version uh you know when I flunked out of school and came back I had no discernible skills in the neighborhood I lived in a quick way to make money was selling drugs. Um, so I fell into that. You know, we all got stories. Everybody's got a story. Uh, and I learned how to stop judging stories. I just ended up in the rooms. Yeah. And, and I drank the Kool-Aid. You know, I was in Delray uh, where I got sober uh, for about 11 years. And I built a really, really good life there. Um, I've heard Patrick on the show mention the phrase a number of times about spiritual kindergarten. <laughs> and that's kind of what it was for me. Like, um, I drank the Kool-Aid, man, in terms of 12-step recovery. Like, I, I was the dude that, um, you know, made three meetings a day, make 90 and 90. I made two or three meetings a day for like four or five years. Wow. And then... Um, it got to a point where a lot of the premises and the dogma of the 12-step program um, really bothered me. Then I kind of graduated to a point where I could do what they say in terms of taking what I needed and leaving the rest alone mm -hmm. without getting, uh, without having some adverse reaction to it, mm -hmm. you know? And then um, it kind of fell away. Uh, I moved to LA because of... Uh, a relationship and that relationship broke up and I didn't feel like I was going to drink right away or anything, but there was a meditation meeting on my route to work every day. And, um, I was like, you know what, that would, I don't know what I might do. My heart's broken. <laughs> Maybe I should go to a meeting. <laughs> you know, it's like, you know, recovery got me to the point where, um, I realized that even if I felt like I wasn't going to be in a danger zone, that didn't mean I wasn't in one. Yeah. Uh -huh. <laughs> you know, yeah. like I learned how to stop trusting my thinking, which is a, a big deal because my wife said, my ex-wife said to me one time, have you ever been in a room where you didn't think you were the smartest guy in the room? <laughs> and, uh, and alcoholism and addiction beat me, beat that out of me, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. And then I'm, you know, in terms of that gray area, um, alcohol was certainly a problem. Heroin was a bigger problem. And I got to a point where um, early in recovery was all about total abstinence for me. Um, and then it got to a point where um, 
I began to drink socially. Now, when I say socially, it's like if I had a beer once a month, that, that was a lot. Uh -huh. um, but what that did for me was it made me feel like I had forfeited my right to participate in a 12-step program because I wasn't completely absent. Yeah. Yeah. And that's kind of where I am now. That's why I was so psyched to be on this show to kind of chop this up with you guys. You oh, know? Yeah. It's like, I think I have a lot to offer in the meetings that I, that I go to, because I go to a meditation meeting now. Um, but I also feel like a bit of a fraud. Yeah. Hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, um, so um, the other good news is, is that they say, you know, give it away once you got it. I've developed through being sober a lot of other areas of my life where I can offer what I've learned through my addiction and alcoholism um, without the stigma of feeling like a fraud. Yeah. Mm. But it's still, it's still kind of messes with me. So it's an interesting place to be. You know, one of the things that kind of made it easy for me to leave a 12-step program was there's kind of an arrogance of, of people in 12-step programs where they think they invented spiritual, we think we invented spiritual principles, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And we think that any other way of getting or staying sober other than this is just wrong. Right. Yeah. Yep. You know, and, and which is one of the reasons why I love you guys in this, in this podcast, because there's no dogma, you know? Like a lot of people that talk about abstinence or moderation or recovery, seem to be coming from a place of, I know, and I'm going to tell you. Yeah. And, and what I love about you guys is every time I hear a guest, you guys seem to be coming from wanting to know. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and, I, and I find that really admirable. Thank you. What works for you? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. I got to think there's a whole bunch of people that got sober that never went into a 12-step. Yeah, sure. Yeah, the majority. <laughs> yeah, a right. lot of them. Well, and then, and then you hear people in 12 steps say, I don't know one person that's ever gotten sober that's not in 12 steps. And it's like, it's because all you know is people in 12 steps. Yeah, it's because they don't go to meetings. That's right. <laughs> that's right. Right. <laughs> so how long was that time period when you kind of evolved, like the way that I would phrase that is like you evolved out of abstinence and not that that's a good fit for everyone, but for you, it seemed to be, how long was that time period between okay, I'm going to be fully abstinent and then kind of reintegrating social drinking. Oh, I probably practiced total abstinence for at least 10 years. Yeah. You know, and then, so that means this is, um, I got, I got sober in 2005. So there's been like six or seven years of, of the gray area. Right. Right. <laughs> and how did that evolve? Like what, what did gray area drinking look like early on? And then what does it look like now? I'm a tennis player. I'm not doing it right now, but for most of the last five or six years, I play like three hours of tennis, five days a week. So it started with um, finishing a really tough set of tennis and somebody saying, here's a cold beer. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, okay. <laughs> yes. And I find it interesting. I'm glad you asked that because there was no, when I did it, it wasn't a big, yeah, relax, oh God, I broke my whatever, you know? Yeah. Yeah, there wasn't any of that at all. It's like, you know what? Like, I like beer. Right. <laughs> you know, and it hasn't been a problem. And I totally am aware of, you know, the 12-step dogma is if you have a beer, it's just going to, it's going to be about a week before you're doing heroin again. And, and, and it was like, well, no, it's, no, it's not. 
Now, having said that, I, I'm not somebody who's going to go around telling people, <laughs> right. you right. can drink Please moderately. Don't do that. Yeah. <laughs> right, right. Clinical <laughs> disclaimer here. <laughs> yeah. And I, think the, I, and I think the only people that would do that are people who are not yeah. really comfortable with the fact that they can. Yeah. Right. Some teammates. Like they're looking right. for some sort of validation. Or, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's like, I don't care what you do, um, you know, to a certain extent. Um, I just know what works for me. I think there is this kind of approach that that's a ticking time bomb, right? Like that seems to be the general consensus. Yeah. If you, if you do have one, all right, let's just wait for your slip, right? Let's wait for that to regress. And I get it because I'm out to my way of thinking, most people probably can't do it, but I'm not interested in yeah. most people. I'm interested in my story, right. you know? And, uh, you know, it's, it's just a really interesting phenomenon to me. I, I don't, um, I don't subscribe to the dogma, um, but I don't boo-hoo it either. Like you gotta cast a wide net. Um, one of the things I was thinking about leading up to being on here was, you know, I came up in the rooms in North, in the Badlands of North Philadelphia and in, uh, and, and in Harlem. And there's a huge cultural difference in 12-step program between poor black neighborhoods. And there's a meeting I go to now in, Beverly Hills, like there's a huge cultural difference in recovery. You know, I came up in meetings where if a newcomer stood up and said something stupid, somebody <laughs> right. in the meeting would say, shut right. the fuck up and Get say here before you talk. I think I saw you do that to somebody in Delray. <laughs> yeah. I think his name was Tommy. <laughs> yeah, right. You know what it's like? We want to know how to use, we'll yeah. call you. <laughs> you know, but I'm, I'm really interested in, um, because it never gets talked about, like in terms of recovery um, or, or latching onto a, a community of recovery, like there are as many differences in those as there are in differences in people in general. Oh, the other thing I think was a big point for me was um, I came to a point where alcohol and drugs were not a problem until they were a problem. Um, I believe that alcoholism and and, and, and substance abuse are, they're problems, don't get me wrong, but they're sure. symptoms of a problem to me. Like my problem wasn't drugs and alcohol. My problem was <laughs> wanting to do drugs right. and alcohol. So how do I address that? Mm -hmm. And once I began to do that, um, it became, I started moving towards things as opposed to living my life trying to get away from something. And, and it changed the game for me. How do you respond to the, you know, the 12 step models thinking of, you know, the allergy, the disease, the switch that gets turned on, you know, I mean, I, this is kind of in the same light of what you were describing, but I'd love mm -hmm. to hear your take on that as you evolved into a place where you could drink. Yeah. It's, it's interesting because I used to be somewhat skeptic of the disease concept. And then for whatever reason, I was in a meeting one day and a dude was talking about his disease and he coughed. And instead of saying disease, he said dis-ease. And I was like, I got that, <laughs> you know what I mean? So I started looking at it as a general, I don't care. I don't know whether I didn't get breastfed long enough. I didn't get a pony when I was 10 and that's why I drink. I don't know. You know, I don't, I don't care if it's a, a disease or not. I just care that I couldn't stop doing it. Mm -hmm. 
you know? So I don't have a strong opinion about like the disease concept and the allergy. You know, it's another one, one of them. If that's the perspective you choose to yeah. look at it from, then, then okay. Did you have a strong reaction from your loved ones when you started drinking? No, no, not at all. Why do you think that is? Well, I think because they had the evidence of the last 10 years of me living a good life. Right. You know, and that was stronger than their fear. I hadn't stolen anything <laughs> lately. Right. <laughs> so it's like, wait a minute, he seems to be living not just okay and not doing bad, but he seems to be thriving, mm-hmm. you know? And, and I'm sure there was a little bit sure. of like, oh, uh, let's wait and see. Mm-hmm. But, but, but I've gone long enough without, you know, causing any great harm because of it so that everybody's comfortable now. And then there's this factor too. Um, and you guys, you know, counsel people. So you kind of, I know you get this. Um, once I stopped being the, the black sheep or the, 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 the bad guy, in the family unit, that was kind of threatening to some people who were who were the good guys. They couldn't point to me anymore and say, well, I'm yeah. not as messed up as that, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? So my doing it um, to them, yeah. I'm sure yeah. there was Here a moment. Here he goes. Uh-huh. Here he goes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 You know, but then over time, like I said, they, um, I have not given them any evidence that I could not exist in a gray area. So I think it's pretty relaxed now. Like nobody talks about it anymore at all. I have to believe that's got something to do with that timeline of like 10 years is a long time. It's very different than being six months sober and going, nah, I think I can drink socially. It was just the heroin that was a problem. And and that's the weird position I'm in sometimes because I'm still everybody I know's go-to guy if their kid's in trouble with drugs and alcohol, like call Alan. (laughs) You know how it is even from the standpoint of a counselor or a therapist, like you want to instill in them all the knowledge and experience you've accumulated, Mm -hmm. but you got to meet people where they are. Mm -hmm. So I tell them that's the point where I might be the most dogmatic. You know what I mean? If you got three days sober uh, and you come to me for help, I'm going to be pretty hardcore, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know, you know, unless you show me otherwise. I used to get asked to speak a lot and I spoke at a facility one time and um, the owner of the facility came to me after it and said, I I want you to work for me. And I was like, okay. So um, I go to the meeting in HR and they're filling out all the paperwork and under job title, she put therapist. And I went, whoa, 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 whoa. (laughs) Like I'm just a dude who came here to speak. And she went, now don't worry about that. We got that. So, So I ran IOP groups for a couple of years and that was a trip you know <laughs> they kind of gave me carte blanche so in the groups that i ran you know i would just as soon have my groups read the velveteen rabbit as i would the big big book mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what i mean like i'll meet you where you're at and i'll use whatever has come through my experience that i think will help this situation and we'll talk about that but i was not a um a hardcore 12 stepper, even as somebody that facilitated IOP groups at a facility. You didn't have your curriculum book ready? <laughs> no, no. Like I was at the famous phrase when I worked there was, um, Mr. Allen keeps it real. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's like, that's all I got. Mm-hmm. That's all I got. That's all I got. You know, and here I am. Yeah. 
And here I am. So I try now, one of the gifts of being sober was I found out I was an artist. You know, I had a sponsor and uh, he said, you're unemployed, you don't do anything. You seem kind of arty. There's a kid's art center down the street. Why don't you go down there and volunteer? So I was like, okay. So three years later, I, I was the program. I became the program director. Wow. And it, it showed me that I, I thought being an artist was, um, I don't even know if I ever thought of myself in that way. Um, but that's one of the gifts I got from sobriety. And then I've modeled my life around that um, ever since. And in terms of any kind of evangelism or, or, or sharing about the gifts of sobriety, that's the, 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 the medium with which I choose to do it, which I see best, you know, there's a, a saying I like, it's like um, there's two that apply to how I feel about recovery. We can either keep pulling people out of the river or we can go upstream and see why they keep falling in. So, and then the other one is art and poetry change nothing, but people die every day for lack of what is found there. Mm. And that's kind of how I live. Like I, I, I'm working on the thing that's found there and I don't know if it works. Um, I just know it's my way of sharing what I got since I stopped drinking and drugging. You know, it's like, that's my contribution and that's the medium for me to, to contribute to getting people to stop drinking and drugging. What are the specific mediums inside the art space? I hesitate sometimes to call myself a photographer, but I sell art photography. But I don't feel like I'm a photographer because I'm not a gearhead and I don't care what the <laughs> resolution is or whether the blacks are saturated. I, I create images that make you look at them and think. Then you're a photographer. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, if you talk to a therapist, you're not a therapist either, but... Yeah, yeah, right, right, right. Like I did an exhibit in the Virgin Islands that was all photographs I took with my phone. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> you yeah. know, it's like that works. Mm -hmm. That works. So that that's it, man. Like I'm I'm all about um sobriety. Um, but I again I think lack of sobriety isn't a problem as much as it is a symptom of a problem. And I'm interested in exploring what that is. I wanna know what your kind of spiritual evolution has looked like over the last 15 years since you stopped drinking and using the first time. I want to know how it's changed since you've introduced substances back into your life. I'll tackle the last one first. I don't think it really has changed. Um, it's got me in touch with gratitude. Like, I'm glad my thinking I could be in the gray area. I'm glad I was right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, me too. <laughs> glad that worked yeah. out. You know, glad I again, haven't had to do an intervention on you. <laughs> yeah, don't try this at home, kids. Um, <laughs> but my evolution, um, and this is kind of how my evolution in life in general has been, I had way more stuff relative to spirituality to unlearn than I had to learn. The stuff that's been the big gifts, that's why The Wizard of Oz is my favorite story. It's like, you had it all the time. <laughs> <You know? laughs> like I didn't, yeah. I didn't become more spiritual, I accepted 
being spiritual. And I think that's true of, of all of us. You know what I mean? It's like mm -hmm. everything you need to know, needed to know, you already knew. You just didn't know you knew. I mean, I'm sure that sounds a little convoluted, but that's, that's what it's been. It's been my accepting spirituality, not discovering it or, you know, cause even when I was at my worst, I knew better, you know? Yeah. I had, a, I had a, an epiphany. I was um, strung out to the gills, man. And I was living in a flop house and I had cut my hand. And I woke up one day, you know, my first thought was how am I gonna get something to get me through today? And when I'm sitting on the edge of the bed in misery, I looked at my hand and I pulled the bandage back and it had started healing. And, and it made me realize that no matter how much of a piece of crap I thought I was, that there's something out there that wants me to heal. And it doesn't care what I think. And it doesn't care how I feel about myself. And it doesn't care, what, care what I, how many DUIs I got. It doesn't care. It's just, my hand is just healing. Now, I don't know what that is, but that's enough for me. Wow. You know, like, like I'm going to ride this horse in the direction it's going. And, I, and, um, and that really started, if there was a moment that that evolution spiritually started for me, it was that. And, um, and back to how has it changed? I, in terms of, of picking up again, um, I'm not even, I don't even know if I like that term. It hasn't really changed, which is another indication that I was right. Yeah. You know, I can do that. You know, it wasn't a big traumatic thing and it didn't cause a change in my spirituality. It just is what it is. Mm -hmm. I love that, like you even pointed out, like, I don't know that I like that term. It's almost like we, like we default to the words that dogma yeah. typically uses. And, and sometimes that doesn't fit for gray area. And so I guess for you, are you having to kind of create your own, like picking up again, right? Implies yeah. like I relapsed, I yeah. went back to it. Like there's some re big regression or slip there. And it's like, you drank and you drank differently 10 years after mm -hmm. you got sober. And that's different than quote unquote kind of picking up again or slipping or relapsing. And that's one of the spaces that I think it, we work on kind of a, as a podcast and just as professionals is like looking at how do we imagine and create new language, new pathways, new ways of doing this because we got tired of well, I won't speak for everyone. I got tired of pulling people out of the river. Right. It's really exhausting. It's really depressing. I've been to too many funerals, right? Like, and your heart's been broken too many times. Okay. Way too many times. And in the spiritual piece too, right? You start to lose your connection to that kind of, you start to become disillusioned. At least I did. And starting to look at like, can we go upstream and what else could we do here? And what could we do for folks that are drinking in the gray area? And what could we do for folks that might be starting to tiptoe into consequence rather than at stage four and yeah. dying and those sorts of things. And, and that's had to come for me in, in my clinical work, at least, and on the podcast of like creating brand new language that maybe mm. never existed or partnering with other people that see this differently. And, and some of the most damaging things I think I've done in session is use some of the 
heavy sobriety language and AA centered language that does not fit for gray area drinkers. And then there's this big turnoff and this big wedge of, oh, I'm not that. So this conversation doesn't apply. And so I think that's a lot of what you were pointing out earlier, like when we're trying to individualize this and say, what works for you? What do you know about your own drinking? Not let me tell you about you and your drinking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then there's the, the dilemma of the, the, the paradox of like, I'm asking you, but you're screwed. <laughs> you know what I mean? like, like you're out of your mind, <laughs> you know? So I yeah. wonder a lot of times, Sam, if um, had somebody come at me with say the new language we're trying to find, would I have, would I have brought into it? You know what I mean? Like, I don't right. know, you know, should I be hardcore? Because I, when I first got to LA, I started working at uh, two, two uh, facilities. And one was like real high end in uh, Laurel Canyon. And I forget where the other one was. But there's a new culture. Uh, like I was seeing the, the, the tsunami caused by this opioid epidemic. And there's a new culture mm-hmm. of alcoholic and addict coming into those facilities now. Like I, my first question to them would always be, what's your name, what's your drug of choice and how many times have you been in treatment? And it was nothing for somebody that was 25 years old to say I've been in treatment 15 times. I can't even wrap my mind around that. Like I drink and use for longer than they've been alive. But every time I went to a facility or, or went into rehab, it was a big deal. And today is kind of like a pit stop. So I'm saying that because like, I don't want an easier or more palatable language for them. You know, like, like I would be kind of mm. hardcore and dogmatic with, with, with guys, with people in that position. So I guess it, it comes down to meeting people where they're at and facilities didn't seem to allow that, which I, was why I feel much more effective, right. you know, if uh, being the guy where, you know what, somebody calls me and says, you know what, I talked to this mutual friend of ours and she told me I might want to talk to you. Like, that's my contribution, mm-hmm. you know, like I couldn't do. Mm-hmm. Uh, I couldn't work as a clinician. Um, I, I shouldn't say I couldn't, but I, but, um, but I would have to really learn how to navigate that. You know, that's why what you guys are doing mm-hmm. is so beautiful. <laughs> you know, like this is a really cool space to, to talk and to listen um, for people in trouble or think they're going to be in trouble or, or don't want to be in trouble to kind of get their bear and listen to what you guys do. Mm-hmm. So thank you. <laughs> Well, I'll, I want to go back to the to the paradox because I think that is it's such a fascinating concept uh, when you think about the twelve step model because often people associate you know the dogma the 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 intense kind of verbiage with shame and guilt mm-hmm. and you know you can often in hindsight look at someone's relapse or attempt to drink or attempt to go back and have one as that shame and guilt all of a sudden because of 10 years of being in the program is so heightened that it creates the desire to drink more and then fall Mm -hmm. back into that space that they were before. And so we look at you and your experience and you somehow in that moment or in that evolution Mm -hmm. push that shame and guilt aside and that, that dogmatic thinking to where you could have a beer 
and not feel like you, uh, well, you did say that you, you're, you feel like a fraud and that kind of stuff, but I'm not losing any sleep. <laughs> <laughs> right, 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 right. But go ahead. Right. No, I get, I get it. But I mean, it, it, and I think that's the fascinating part of what your experience is, is, you know, so many people in recovery and, and especially people in early recovery ask, you know, people who have been in recovery for a while, don't you think you could drink again? You've been in recovery for 10, 15 years. Don't mm-hmm. you think you could give it a shot and, 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 and it would work? Well, you know, we do that dance, uh, you know, that we're scared. We are scared to death to give it a shot. Yeah. And I would love, it's just fascinating to know that you, you didn't have all that. No, but I, but I also don't want to promote that approach. No, I understand. Yeah, yeah. I understand. Right. I want to ask you more. Let's just forget prior to 2005. Mm-hmm. If 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 that never existed, I think one of the values that we can extract from from your situation is the intentionality that that you placed on your return or exploration or whatever the hell we want to call it return i like but it's like it's like anybody that that that's never had a drink before you know i mean say you're a 25 year old kid or young Mm -hmm. adult and you've never drank and you know you've seen it seen the harms and the risks in your family and 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 you're like hey i'm gonna give this a shot like what was your process around that i mean did you come into this with with like, all right, I'm going to drink a half a beer and then I'm going to wait a week, you know, and see what happens. Like how, or were you just like, ah, fuck it. I'm going to, you know. Are you talking about in the beginning or my, my return? Yeah. Or how did that evolve? Like, I mean, I, I know that you said something, it was like around, you know, a, a, a breakup and you, and you, you tried one, but, the- but how is the intentionality piece come into play as this has continued? Like how intentional are you with this or is it just like you know and i feel like i want to have one yeah that's pretty much it <laughs> the good news is is i just don't think so, about I don't, it oh i don't often feel like that you know yeah yeah, and yeah. That, that's yeah i just I want, don't often feel you know? now again i don't think that i've been able to not reach the tipping point because i've got some great amount of fortitude i don't know why I don't care, <laughs> you know? Having gone down in flames and experience what happens when you do go over the line, I think had, upon my return, it started to get even the slightest bit questionable, I would dive back in. I would dive back in. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, has that happened at all? Were there, are there times in the last six, seven years where you've had a drink or two and you're like, oh, you had too many no, or something? No, this is getting a but, little sketchy. the thought has occurred. There's been a constant, and I don't want to use, I started to use the word vigilance, but that sounds a little too intentional because it's not as intense as vigilance. It's like awareness. Yeah, that's the word. That's the mm-hmm. word, Sam. But there's always an awareness. There's always an awareness. That's how I am. Like there, I'm always curious about what's going on. If I want a yeah. drink, how much I want to drink, why this week versus not, you know, hasn't been four months. Like why, why today? And 
but mm-hmm. it, it's not a worry. It's not a concern. It's not, like you right. said, it's not a vigilance where I'm kind of racking my brain and going, is this the right thing? Is it not the right thing? It's, it's just kind of the noticing process mm-hmm. and knowing what to do with that. And I think, you know, one of the things that I always tell my clients, especially the ones that are in recovery or have claimed some sort of sobriety over the years is if you're really determined to return to use, that could be a red flag. Like if your goal is to figure out how to drink successfully when there's evidence that you largely cannot do that Mm -hmm. and you're really dead set on making that happen, Mm -hmm. that would be one of my red flags to say, maybe you're not ready or maybe that's not the best choice. And, and let's at least kind of use your prefrontal cortex to look at the risks there and weigh them. You could take the maybe out of that. (laughs) It's definitely, yeah, it's definitely. And the other kind of gift of that awareness is it made me cognizant, which I wasn't when I was in the midst of it, of of what specific times I want to drink. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like, you know, any kind of intense feeling, and it doesn't matter whether it's good or bad, was a reason to drink or any sort of discomfort. And now, um with the ability to, to override that, I, I recognize when it comes now, you know? Like I had a day the other day where like 19 small things went wrong. There was no way I wouldn't have had a drink. <laughs> There's no way I wouldn't have. And, um, you know, I love that out-of-body experience thing you have when you get sober where, you know, I haven't done, heroin in 17 years and I'll be walking down the street and go some heroin heroin would really be nice now and and then a second later it's like I'm out of my body and I'm looking at me going Alan you are hilarious like you know what I mean like you really thought that for a second (laughs) you know what I mean and I don't take myself that serious anymore in that area it's like oh that's right you, you're okay in a lot of areas, but when it comes to substances, there's parts of you that are just mm-hmm. insane. Like, damn, your brain's crazy. And I don't think that, <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah, it's like, and so I don't think it ever went, it ever goes away, but it doesn't carry the weight anymore of like, uh, will I or won't I? Like, a, you know, like it stopped making sense on a really basic level. It's not a big moral crisis. It's like, well, that'd be stupid. Right. <laughs> it know? sounds it sounds so spiritual. Right? Like like your okay. your experience going into having a beer every now and then sounds very spiritual. It just sounds present. You're mm-hmm. not making a big deal out of it. You're not overthinking it. You're not riddled with guilt and shame. You're not thinking of the past. You're not thinking of the future. It's just if it happens, it happens. He's not self-medicating either. It's, yeah, yeah. And you're not. Yeah, and it's not intentionally trying to change the way you feel with some premeditated way. It just sounds very spiritual, and it sounds. And I think it's an, uh, a representative of your spiritual state. My question about that is, though, would that have been possible had I not totally drunk the Kool-Aid? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Probably yeah. not. Probably not. Like, would it even be possible without the dogma that I don't currently that practice? You don't use yeah. now. <laughs> I love that that question, man. I mean, and that this is like something that I tell you know in my in my clinical practice when I'm meeting with adolescents or young adults that are in the contemplation state of change. 
um, or the pre-contemplative stave change where they're they're not. The dogma ain't touching them. Um, they don't think they don't they don't think they have a problem controlling their substance use, even though there's plenty of evidence to the contrary, and their life is in shambles. And 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 the the argument that I always put into play there, or the the question is like, all right, well, well then, why don't you get your life together first? Mm-hmm. Give yourself some time to be, you know, to learn how to be an autonomous adult. Mm. Find some purpose, find some meaning, find some passion. You know, build a nice little life for yourself. And then if you want to introduce substances into your life, go for it. You know, <laughs> and, and I and I and I think that's, you know, what you did is you built this spiritual foundation to where you could have those uh, uh, that objective awareness and and that mindfulness and and you have joy in your life without the use of substances so it, it's like I, I i love how you posed that question if you if you didn't go through what you went through and didn't reach the plateaus that you've reached in your recovery would this be possible Here, here's the ghetto version of that <laughs> there was a meeting i used to go to in the badlands in philly called the meeting was called the zoo it was that crazy oh my that's God. the meeting where they tell you if you were talking nonsense in your share to shut the hell up. Yeah. <laughs> i've seen guys tell sponsees i want you to agree to do everything i tell you to do for 90 days mm-hmm. and every day of that 90 days i want you to give me a dollar and if at the end of 90 days you want to get high, I'm going to give you your $90 wow. and let you go. Yeah. I love that shit. And again, that's another example of drinking the Kool-Aid. It's like, if you do everything we tell you, because this is really pretty simple. It's not easy, yeah. but it's pretty simple. If you do, if every one of your clients did what you told them to do for 90 days. Oh, man. Healed. <laughs> Healed. <laughs> but I mean, the, the cool thing to notice about that too is that that i feel like that is true mm-hmm. for for anybody on the alcohol use spectrum it's not even yeah. people for severe alcohol use disorder mm-hmm. right, like like, right, like right. if you got somebody that you know right. that drinks th- three drinks every night when they come home from work but it it, it you know or four, four or five drinks and they're you know not as present with their kids as they want to be they're not as productive at work their relationship with their significant other isn't as good as it could be. You apply those same principles to that mm-hmm. scenario. Yeah. Yeah. Same out, same better. outcome. Yeah. I believe it would be more effective. I agree mm-hmm. with them. You know, I really do because if you're in that gray area or the area that you're talking about, it's still, it's much easier to look at, over that first 90 day period as what you're doing is moving towards something as opposed to trying to escape the deadly clutches of something, you know? So I I like that idea. It's really interesting. And, Mm -hmm. And again, I think the foundation of my attitudes about sobriety right now, um, or I get that it's a problem. Like, 
we still need people to pull people out of the river. I'm just not that guy. (laughs) Yeah. Like I'd rather exercise whatever gifts and talents I have trying to make visible the spiritual malady that caused that. You know what I mean? So I might write a piece. Mm -hmm. It's really interesting because sobriety led me to accept the idea that I might be an artist, but I still had been so conditioned that I didn't think that was something I could do for a living. So the pandemic hit and I was working remotely. And then um, I had like a medical crisis where I had to have a couple of wrist surgeries and it shut me down for like five months. And in that five months, somebody had seen my photographs and stuff that I write on social media. And they called me and said, we're, we're gonna do an exhibit at this museum. Would you design it? And I was like, what? <laughs> they were like, yeah, we think you could do it. So I did it and it led to more work. Um, somebody wrote stuff I posted on social media about race. New Jersey has this thing called the Amistad law that says every high school curriculum has to have some component of black history and teachers that don't feel confident in it or want to do it better, the state will pay for them to go to workshops. Um, So an institution asked me to create two workshops to teach those teachers. I got no letters behind my name. You know what I mean? Like, I, I, I'm not, I don't know, but I did it. I did it and they were huge successes. So now I'm in a place where mm-hmm. I can, I'm getting who I say I am and what I do are becoming the same thing. You know what I mean? And that's, um, like I always say to people trying to get sober, there's shit you know, there's shit you don't know, and there's shit you don't know you don't know. And that's the, the mm-hmm. gift that recovery gave me and, or, or not getting high and drunk anymore gave me. Like I found out about all this stuff I didn't know I didn't know. And that's kind of where I try to live right. now. You know, and to me, because when I got sober, the day I left for treatment, I had been in worse shape physically. I had been in worse shape legally. I had been in worse shape financially, but I've never been in worse shape spiritually than I was on that day. Like, I don't care about consequence. Alcoholics, consequences don't, I shouldn't say they don't matter, but that's not, you know, nobody's gonna stop drinking solely because they got too many DUIs, you know, or because, you know, they're, they're, they've got a huge tax bill now. Like that logic, when logic gets in a ring with mine, right alcoholism my alcoholism kicks its kicks logic's ass every time every time yep wow alan incredible first i want to say thank you for everything in that conversation there that was Mm -hmm. just outstanding um and fascinating thank you for your candidness we just want to hear a little bit as a listener when and why you started listening to our podcast i started listening just because of my association with Patrick, but what has kept me listening, I'm trying to think of the particular shows. The two that jump out at me are the one you did with Dr. Lemke, and it was one you did with Fisher. Yes, yes. Dr. Fisher. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know, it was, it was, you know what, it was y'all, it was you three. It was you three. 
it was you guys not coming from a place of we're experts and we're going to tell you how this goes. Like you come from a, a place of like curiosity and inquiry. Like that's what made me want to listen to every podcast you have. And, and you pick good guests. I am evidence of that. <laughs> Obviously. <laughs> Clear. Clear. You know, but I, I just, I just love the way that you guys um, approach what you do. Well, that means a lot. That means a lot. Thank you. What, what do you think you, you would like to hear more of? Good question. Um, or may, may, sorry, maybe not more of differently, you know, something that we haven't covered. i tell you, yeah. And this isn't a criticism. This is more of an observation. Lay it on but, us, Alan. We'll take criticism. Say just just say it. They insult you. <laughs> <laughs> this isn't criticism, but you guys should really stop yeah. doing this. I hate to, to stick it under that all encompassing rubric of, um, diversity. Cause that gets yeah. a bad rap. But I think that the approach of most of the, the show that I've seen, and rightfully so, have come from, from your sociocultural perspective. You know? yeah. So, you know, you yeah. need more bums on the show. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Like, just no question. Like I was talking earlier, and one of the areas that's fascinated me lately is um, the cultural differences. Oh, this is this this came to me the other day when I was listening to I think it was Dr. Lenke. Um, there's this thing I've been reading about lately about generational trauma, you know, mm-hmm. and about and I, I was listening to something else and it was about if 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 people drink to excess over anxieties, like being black is there's there's an anxiety in that that shows up every day. So much so that I don't know that um, treatment knows yet how to address that. You know what I mean? Or make space for discussing that, you know? Um, You know, I I go to meeting here in Beverly Hills and some days I just look at, I just look at the people and just shake my head, you know? Mm -hmm. A woman was in there freaking out the other day because she had a big affair that she was having in her yard and she was having engraved glasses on the table and the engraver made a mistake. This woman was- Oh my God. I know, this was- Tragic, break. tragic. Yeah. Now, now I'm, I'm, it took me a while to get to a place where I realized that her pain is no less than mine. Yeah. Alan, let me ask you this, because I think that this is really important. It's something that we do talk about. And do you have any advice or suggestions on how- to do that because that is always one of the big topics when that gets kind of brought up and the strategy around like how to involve different people, mm-hmm. places, things, cultural backgrounds, right? Different socioeconomic mm-hmm. statuses, those sorts of things. It, that's, I think one of the struggles that I have is how to invite any of that in mm-hmm. and how to have anyone other than quote unquote people like us be willing to talk about some of these things. And I mean, clinically, culturally, all of it, because I think that 
in no offensive way whatsoever, I think you're a clinician's worst nightmare. You're an addiction specialist's worst nightmare because you don't fit in any kind of box. Your recovery yeah. story doesn't make any sense to them. It's very mm -hmm. scary to them that you could share something like this and it could be perceived as recommendation or an ideal situation or something, something that everyone should go try, right? Yeah, and right, yet right. I do think that this is, personally, I think that this is way more of the value of the conversation is more mm -hmm. in the stories, the anecdotes, the what works for me, the, the personalization of how do you make it okay in your head that you have one beer, even though you're, you know, been sober for this many years and that sort of thing, rather than just talking about conceptual ideas and science and what brain matter says and, and those sorts of things. And what I've found is a huge barrier in inviting any of any other type of community in to talk about this. There's some fear, resistance, some fraud, mm -hmm. kind of imposter syndrome concept. And do you have any kind of recommendations around that advice? Well, I think you're kind of doing it now. I think maybe some sort of expansion on, I don't know, one show a month or whatever, being um, like, lovers of the podcast or a regular Joe, yeah. you know what I mean? Like just bring people on. And, and that could, um, that's kind of chancy. For sure. You know what I mean? I <laughs> love it. Yeah, I took a, took a big old chance yeah. with you. You've done all right today. <laughs> you know? And, and then big the other old. thing is, um, and I'm sure you guys do this anyway, like, um, like keep your ears open mm -hmm. for other examples. Like there's this guy and you guys will know what his name is and I can't think of it. Um, he's a, I want to say E-N-D-Y, Zendy and whatever. It's a black dude, he's got dreadlocks, like a Harvard professor. Who uh, Carl yeah. Hart. Yeah. yeah, the guy that shoots dope on the weekend. Yeah, yeah, that guy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that guy. Who yeah. said some of the most wonderfully helpful and totally fucking insane things I've ever heard in my life. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? But um, <laughs> at the very or at least if if he if you couldn't go after somebody like him as a guest, you could you could discuss something he's said mm -hmm. or something he's done or something he's published or somebody that travels in, in that in that world. You know, it might be a book. I don't I don't know. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. It could be addressing what movie was it? There's an old Al Pacino movie called Panic in Needle Park. It's um you guys never heard of that movie? Mm -hmm. No. Oh, it's, no, like, it's, like, it's like Al Pacino's first movie, and it's called Panic in Needle Park, and it takes place in, in Harlem in the 60s and 70s. I brought that into an IOP group and let them watch it, and then we just discussed it. You know what I mean? Now, I don't know how you would logistically do that on a podcast, mm -hmm. but it's just bringing in other examples of what it is you're trying to, to get to. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Great suggestion. Yeah. You know, maybe we'll bring, maybe we'll watch Scarface. Yeah. <laughs> oh, dude. And, and I found that um, the people I would talk, I was talking to, particularly in the IOP classes, um, you know, they look at me stone faced for half the lecture, but, but the rest of it, like once I introduced, you know, an Al Pacino movie or Scarface, there's plenty of material in there to discuss anything I want, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. but yeah. they're all in because it's Scarface. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right you know like they're looking at it with a completely different perspective than they might normally have you know what i mean it was interesting it was like and once i gained and i found this to be true with students i teach um when i used to run an arts and education center 
once I got them to trust me, and I think that anybody that listens to your podcast trusts you, it freed me up to make mistakes. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? It freed me up to make mistakes. Yeah. So you might have a, a, a podcast episode that goes wrong or sideways, but nobody who's been listening to your podcast is ever going to think anything than you went into that with good intentions. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? So, so take more risks. That's what you're saying. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. 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 I can do Started that. Today. I know how much um, <laughs> trust I have from listening to the podcast and you guys. So if you brought something on and it went sideways, it'd be like, okay, next week. Thank you for that though. I think that's really helpful. Yeah. I hope. Very, very, very helpful. With regards to a lot of the work you do, a lot of the altruism you, you, you're passionate about, I want to ask Alan Burgess, why do you care? Yeah, I've heard you ask people that question. <laughs> yeah, yeah. If AA was spiritual kindergarten, in my further studies of it, I've completely bought into the truth that the idea that you and I are two separate beings is an illusion. So the reason I care is because I am, there are no other people. Like we're all part of like some, whatever you want to call it, consciousness or whatever. So I've never done something good for somebody and not felt good myself as a result of it. I've never done something bad to somebody and not felt bad myself. So there's things I do that people think are I'm doing because I'm altruistic, but I'm doing them because I know that we're all better. Like, like, like I care because it looks like it's about you, but it's about me too. There's no difference. Mm -hmm. And I don't, like there's certain things I've come to that are beliefs and there's certain things that I just know. Like that's not a theory for me. You know what I mean? That's not like a philosophy or a belief. Yeah. Like that's like gravity. That's like a law. Yeah. So that's why I care because <laughs> there's only yeah. one of us. <laughs> That's so awesome. That's so good. <laughs> I have my moments yeah. now. <laughs> you know, like the guy that cuts in front of me in, in, in traffic is an asshole. He's not you. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but everybody else is just, you know, like, you know, I just try to, I care because um, it seems to be very profitable. <laughs> I care because I'm selfish. <laughs> <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah 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 it is spiritually profitable <laughs> give us three three takeaways uh like your your big three takeaways from you kind of living this spiritual life one of them is um my concept of time has changed like everybody says life is short not if you're paying attention. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Like I, I've gotten pretty good at like being present in every moment. Like I've gotten so much better at yeah. that. You know what I mean? It's like on a good day, like a mango can make me cry. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like this is the best <laughs> fucking mango. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like God invented mangoes. <laughs> this is so awesome. I love it. <laughs> you know, which leads to, I guess, number two is, is like gratitude. 
I heard a saying recently that gratitude is the most valuable currency there is. Like I, I believe that. And I didn't feel that before. Mm-hmm. You know, gratitude was, wow, I'm glad that cop didn't pull me over. Right. That's what, that was gratitude for me. And I thought gratitude was a feeling. And I've come to know that it's a verb. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It's like, I know you're glad and appreciative, but now what are you going to do with that? You know what I mean? Like, are you going to spread it? So that's two. I believe in, um, in attraction. Like, like the, the four of us sitting here is not an accident. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like I seem to, and then I tell this to people in early recovery. It's like they always tell you to stay away from people who are negative. Like I don't have, I have knucklehead repellent. Like if you're not about something, you will be uncomfortable around me. Right. You know what I mean? Like I don't have to avoid negative people. I'm the last person they want to be around. (laughs) They avoid you, right? Yeah, they do. So those have been like my biggest gifts, man. It's like, and I got like some stuff going on. Like I'm going through like a pretty big medical thing. Um, my job just placed me on like a 39 month leave. Um, stuff that a couple of years ago would have been like major. You know, I've had three people a day call me up since I got out of the hospital. Like, you okay? Is there anything you need? You know, it's like, what? <laughs> like, well. don't you know who I am? <laughs> you know? Like that part of me that was caught up in alcoholism and addiction um, still thinks of myself sometimes as that, you know? And um, when things happen that make me realize I'm not that, you know, that's what I was, that's my story. That ain't who I am. It's yeah. a beautiful thing, man. Yeah. Yeah. Alan, thank you so much. So good. No, thank you guys, man. I really, um, you know, a lot of what we said today, I've been walking around thinking. And again, uh, I don't always trust <laughs> what I'm walking around thinking. <laughs> so you guys giving me a place to um, to look at other people and, and talk about it is truly appreciated. Golly. Yeah, man. We a appreciate plus. you. My man. I love, I love you, man. <laughs> Thanks for I being here. You. I wish I'd give you a big old hug right now. <laughs> I will continue to be a, an, a friend in a podcast and an avid listener. And I'm turning everybody I know onto it, man. I'm telling people to check it out. Oh, Love yeah. that. Well, Thank we're you. Gonna, we're going we're gonna to invite you back real soon. The information and opinions shared on this podcast are solely those of the hosts and guests and are not a substitute for medical advice. If you feel like you may need professional help, here are some resources. For the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration hotline, call 1-800-662-4357 or visit smsa.gov. For listeners in the Charlotte, North Carolina community, visit dilworthcenter.org or call 704-372-6969 or visit theblanchardinstitute.com or call 704-288-1097.